Again, our text this morning is Matthew chapter 24. And this morning we're going to be looking at a little longer passage. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 28. Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 28. If you found your way there, I invite you to stand and let's read the Word of God together. God's Word says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And you can be seated. Um, over the last several weeks, we've been studying through this passage and looking at its uh, fulfillment in light of the events that occurred around the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And if you remember, all of this came to pass because as Jesus came out of the temple there at the end of uh, chapter 23, uh, he had described to his disciples the desolation of what would happen there in Jerusalem and his disciples understanding the picture that Jesus was painting or the description that he was giving began to ask him, when will all of these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so we've spent several weeks looking at the signs that Jesus gave. Some of those things that would be signs outside of the church, physical manifestations in nature, things that would be easily visible by those outside of the church, but then other things that would happen inside of the church, things that would happen to those who were Christians, uh, the persecutions and the tribulations and the things that they would suffer, uh, which were prevalent all throughout that period of time from the time in Jesus. Jesus was resurrected and ascended back into heaven. The New Testament church was founded and, and up until the time of the destruction of the temple. And even beyond that, but specifically during those times, as Jesus says in, uh, chapter, excuse me, in chapter 24, verse 34, that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And if you remember, that's really been the driving narrative of how we've been looking at this passage because Jesus tells us, he tells the disciples, you who I'm speaking to, these things will all take place before this generation, before you pass away. And so that's the, the paradigm or the directive of which we've been looking at this chapter. And so when we come to verses 15 through 28, we begin to take another turn where now Jesus has come to verse 14 and he says, then the end will come. So this was the question the disciples had asked him, what will be the signs uh, of the end. And so Jesus has said, once the gospel has been preached to every nation, remember that was to the entire inhabited world, uh, which Paul and the other writers of the gospels tell us that by AD 70, the gospel had been preached to the entire inhabited world, the known world at that time, uh, the way, at least as far as they knew the world or understood the world to be. And so Jesus says, and then the end will come. So what is the end? So now here in verses 15 through 28, Jesus is going to give us a description of what the, the culmination of all of 
these events will be. And so the first thing that I want you to notice here is the desecration of the temple. The desecration of the temple. Look at verse 15. He says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, um, Luke, in relaying this same passage, says it this way. He says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. And so Jesus here is using language pulled from Daniel. Uh, there are several passages in the book of Daniel, Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, uh, Daniel 12.11, uh, which talks about this desecration of the temple. Now what Daniel is referring to here uh, was about a prophecy that would happen about 400 years after he wrote it. Uh, when, when one of the monarchs, Antichius the, the fourth, um, who was in, uh, in 167, a, excuse me, 167 B.C., ordered an altar constructed on top of the altar of burnt offerings in the temple, and then offered sacrifices of swine to Zeus on top of it. So this was an abomination of, of, of many reasons for the Jews. Number one, because an, an, an altar had been erected on top of their altar inside the temple, which would have been bad enough. But then sacrifices were made to a pagan deity, which made it even worse. And then even on top of that, the sacrifices were pigs, which was an unclean animal to the Jewish religion. So it was kind of this trifecta of, 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 of desolation inside of the temple. And so Jesus is calling back reference to that and helping them to remember this is this abomination of desolation, a false type of worship. And when we see abomination in the Old Testament, it's, it, it's the idea of an idolatrous affront to the true worship of God. That's what one commentator called it, an idolatrous affront to the true worship of God. So anything that comes in the place of true worship is a desecration or an abomination. And so what was happening here, Jesus is saying, you're going to see something visible take place. You're going to watch something happen there in the temple that is going to be like what Daniel the prophet spoke of. And in fact, far worse, really, than what even Daniel the prophet told of and what had happened in 167 B.C. But now it's interesting here. I want you to notice Jesus is talking about the abomination of desolation that is going to take place in the temple. And Jesus had already referred to this in the passage that I spoke of earlier in chapter 23, where he says, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. So he's talking about this idolatry that was going to come into the temple, this uh, abomination that was going to take place, that everything was going to be torn down. But the, notice the interesting language that Jesus uses there in verse 23. He says, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Now, you may not notice at the beginning, but what he says there is, your house. Now, earlier on, just a few chapters ago, Jesus had gone in and cleansed the temple, and he said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And so now, Jesus, in speaking of what was going to happen, he has changed his language from calling it his house or his father's house to saying, Your house. He's speaking of the really the abandonment of God away from the temple and of everything that was going to take place, this desecration that was going to happen inside of the temple. Now, it's clear from Jesus' words that what happened there in 167 B.C. was not the complete fulfillment of everything that Daniel had spoken of because what was going to happen here in A.D. 70 was going to cause the temple to become a spiritual wasteland. Not only would it be destroyed, but it would never be rebuilt Again, Now, there are two lines of thought as to what Jesus is referring to here when he talks about what particular event would be this abomination of desolation. 
So in the fall of, of, AD, of 67 AD and lasting until the spring of 68 AD, uh, the, the Jewish zealots under the rule of, uh, of one of their leaders occupied the temple. And so during this time, they made a mockery of the rituals and of the priesthood, and they allowed criminals to walk freely in and out of the Holy of Holies. And they installed a man named Phinehas as the high priest. And when this happened, the retired high priest was quoted as saying this, It would have been far better for me to have died before I have seen the house of God laden with such abominations and its unapproachable and hallowed places crowded with the feet of murderers. So many people point to this was kind of the beginning of the end because the zealots had taken over the temple and began to offer false sacrifices, began to do all kinds of things that made a mockery of the priesthood. Now remember, what was happening here was really empty worship anyway because the glory of God had departed. When Jesus was crucified, the temple was ripped from top to bottom, signifying that there was no longer the presence of God dwelling inside the tabernacle. That's the reason here in this moment that these criminals could walk in and out of the Holy of Holies because the presence of God had departed. Had this happened beforehand, they would have been struck dead the very moment they even put their hand through the curtain to go inside. So it was really just the sign of the inevitable end of what was happening. So this was happening in 67, 68 A.D., And then the second viewpoint of what was happening, and again, it's probably an either-or type situation, a a, a combining of the two, is when the temple was finally destroyed in A.D. 70, when the Roman armies had come in, and as they're actually burning the temple down, they set up their legionary standards uh, opposite of the eastern gate. Now, if you're not familiar with with old types of warfare, I mean, it even happens still in, in American warfare up until very recently, um, you know, when an army would go into battle, they would take their flags. And as they're going into flags, it was a sign of them marching forward. And then by the planting of the flag and the place that they had taken showed their victory or their success in battle. And it was even more, uh, more regalia that would happen in this period of time. And so as the Roman armies began to, uh, to, to burn down Jerusalem and burn the temple, they set up all of these legions, all of these flags with their deities and their worship on there. And then they began to offer sacrifices there at the temple. And as they did, they were acclaiming Titus, their leader, as imperator, which was uh, the victorious commander. And so this would have been, again, a, a horrible abomination to the Jewish people to see these legions, these flags of these pagan deities and these pagan leaders erected outside here of the temple and sacrifices being made inside the temple, not in the honor of God, not in the tribute to God, but in the tribute to Titus, this Um, this uh, ruler who had come in and began to destroy the temple. So these are the two things that most likely Jesus is referring to here because the temple is being desecrated through the false worship either of the zealots or through the Romans themselves. And so we see how, again, all of this points to the idea that the true worship of God has departed from the temple and now what is left is an empty chasm of what it used to be. It's really an empty vacuum of, of, of desolation. There's no truth to be found there now because everything, even what the Jewish people were attempting to do, uh, was, was false worship, was, was worship that had no hope, worship that had no, uh, no reliability, nothing that they could put their hope and to trust into. Now what's interesting is this is one of the passages that's often used um, to speak of, of a future rebuilding of the temple. Because if you read this from a futurist perspective, if you read Matthew 24 from a futurist perspective, and you say that all of these things have yet to come, then you say, then therefore, when the abomination of desolation 
is standing in the holy place, you say, well, the holy place has to exist. And we know the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So in order for the abomination of desolation to stand in the holy place, there has to be a holy place for it to be there. Uh, and so this is kind of the, the passage that people will refer to in saying that there's going to be a rebuilt temple. But again, as we've discovered before, there's no place in the New Testament that talks about a temple being rebuilt. It's read through in this verse and assumed that that would have to happen if you take a futurist interpretation of this passage. But if you take a clear reading of the text and understand that Jesus was talking about the generation which was standing before him, the disciples, those who were gathered around, you will see these things take place. Then the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 perfectly fulfills this passage without the need for the future rebuilding of the temple. So we notice here the desecration of the temple. I want you to secondly notice the deliverance from tribulation. This is verses 16 through 20. Look at what Jesus says. He said, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go back down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Luke describes it in this way. He said, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Now, we understand very clearly using the language that Jesus uses here that he is describing a local event and not a worldwide tribulation. Because if Jesus here were talking about a worldwide tribulation, there would be no place to go to. There would be no place to run and to flee and to get away from the tribulation that was coming. But he very clearly tells them, if you're in Judea, he says, go to the mountains. Now, we very clearly understand from, from other Old Testament passages and just from, from human nature. If you think about today, if you think about um, the stereotypical, uh, what we would call a doomsday prepper, uh, where does a doomsday prepper go to prepare for what they think is the coming? They don't go to the city, right? They go somewhere out in the middle of the country. They go out into the mountains because we understand that mountains stand for safety, for security, for isolation, and for protection. It was the same thing in Jesus' day. People knew that if you needed to flee away from the city, the mountains was a good place and a source of protection. And so Jesus knew that when the Romans were going to come in and they were going to take Jerusalem and destroy Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, they weren't going to be going out into all the regions surrounding that the people, his people, the people of God, the Christians, would be safe if they fled outside of the city. So Jesus is describing a local event that was going to take place there with the fall of the temple in A.D. 70. Because again, there would have been no place to hide if this was a worldwide event. But notice in this um, in this deliverance, notice here that there is a determined flight. So when the recognition that these events were occurring, Jesus says, therefore, when you see, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So he says that this event that would happen, this desecration of abomination, this, uh, this uh, abomination of desolation, he says, when you see these things, then you must immediately do this. There must be a determination. There must be an immediacy to your flight. Now, Jesus says that those who are in the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Now, this would be a little lost on us in 21st century America because I don't think there's very many of us in the room that spend a whole lot of time on top of our house anymore, right? We spend most of the time in our house. Uh, but in first century Judaism, it was very common 
because the housetops, because of the climate, the rooftops were flat, and they spent a lot of time up there. You would leisure there in the afternoons, the, the roofs were flat, the houses oftentimes were connected together, and so this is where you would spend a, a great majority of your time, was not in the house, but actually on top of the house. And because the houses were all connected together, it was very easy to go from housetop to housetop all the way down the row where you lived and then get down on the end. And so what Jesus is talking about here is that when you begin to see these things take place, you need to leave so quickly that you don't even need to take the time to go down your stairs in your house to get your belongings and then go out the door. He said, you make a straight beeline off the rooftops of the houses and get to the mountains as quickly as possible. And then Jesus says, for whoever's laboring in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. If you've ever worked outside, uh, especially around in, in our parts about the, in the uh, spring or in the fall of the year, you know what it's like to get up in the morning and it be a little chilly, so you put a coat on, and as you get to working during the day, you get hot, so you take your coat off and you lay it to the side and you continue working. Jesus says that in this moment, when you begin to see these things to take place, that you don't even go back to grab the coat that you have laying at the end of the row. He said, you immediately take off and go. So this was a determined flight. You need to realize what's happening. You need to realize the severity of it, and you need to realize the immediacy of it, that you need to get out very quickly. But Jesus also points out that this is going to be a difficult journey. Now, Jesus' compassion here is 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 demonstrated because when he says woe to those who are pregnant, he's not saying um, woe in a sense of he's, he's decrying a pain or judgment upon them, but he's saying woe as far as a compassionate type of woe. He's saying, but, but compassion, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, obviously, Jesus' compassion here because of the suddenness of this travel, because of the distance they would have to go, because of the type of traveling they would have to be doing, it would be much more difficult for a woman who was pregnant or for a woman who was nursing a child to be able to do these things, to have to leave without taking adequate supplies and would have to leave without maybe having adequate preparations endured. And so Jesus was here was showing and, and praying for or encouraging them to pray uh, for compassion in that area. He also says not in the winter on the Sabbath. And the reason for that is because in Jerusalem during the winter, the roads would be near impassable with mud. The temperatures at night would be somewhat bone-chillingly cold, especially those who had left behind uh, possessions and coats and the things that they need. And then when it comes to the Sabbath day, travel would be very difficult uh, because in the early years of the Christian church, any, uh, even many Christian believers were still reluctant to violate the Jewish traditions surrounding the Sabbath. Uh, so they knew what they had taught, and they knew that they were no longer under bondage to those, but out of respect to other Jewish people, they would not dis disobey those laws. But in addition to that, uh, traveling on the Sabbath would be near impossible because every city gate would be closed. Every store would be closed. It would be uh, hard to find people who would even offer them hospitality because of the Jewish regulations regarding travel on the Sabbath and the things that they could do on the Sabbath day. So Jesus here is describing the difficulty of those moments and the difficulty of those times. But I want you to notice here that he also calls them to a dependent faith because notice what he says there in verse 20. He says, but pray. He talks about the, the woe on those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies. And then he says, but pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Because Jesus wants them to encourage that Jesus knows that these things are going to take place. But he says, still pray. He says, pray that God would have mercy. Pray that God would, in His sovereignty, would choose to not do those things on the Sabbath day, would choose to not do those things in the wintertime. 
And it's one of those moments where we call ourselves to dependence upon God and trusting in Him. Just like with sickness, we know that sickness is in this world. And we know that it's likely that any of us could get sick at any time. But we pray that we don't. We pray that we don't succumb to diseases. We pray that we don't succumb to temptations. We pray all those things. So Jesus is calling them to a dependent faith. He's saying pray and trust in Him because even if God allows these things to happen and God allows you to go through those times in those circumstances, you will have a more dependent faith and trust upon Him. So Jesus says pray. Pray that God would allow these things to not be in the winter. Pray that it would not be on the Sabbath. Pray that it would not be when someone is pregnant or someone is nursing. Now, interestingly, uh, James Jordan, who was quoted in uh, one of the commentaries that I read, uh, pointed even to a a broader, deeper meaning that I think can also be taken from this text. Uh, When Jesus points to this idea of of leaving the cloak behind and leaving the... um, leaving the house without going back to his house. He, he's talking about this idea that Jesus even more deeply is talking about this idea of being ready to leave everything behind. That Jesus had told his disciples that they would have to be willing to deny themselves and to take up their cross and to follow him. So there's even this broader understanding that Jesus here has pointed to this idea that you need to be ready to leave every single thing behind in order to follow me and in order to be obedient to what you have called me or what you, I have called you to do. Now, a third thing I want you to notice in this passage is the devastation of the time. Now, this was really interesting to me as I studied through it this week um, because just in continuing to study through what happened there in Jerusalem, I was never really aware, again, until this study of how severe what happened in the, the time leading up to A.D. 70 really was for the Jewish people and for what happened to them in that period of time. And notice what Jesus says in verses 21 and 22. He says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, Luke, in his relation of what Jesus says here, says there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword. And will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, Jesus calls this a great tribulation. And it's been pointed out by several commentators that it's called a great tribulation because of the greatness of the crime that caused this punishment to come upon Jerusalem. And what was the greatness of the crime? Well, the greatness of the crime was their persecution their crucifixion, and their denial of the person and the deity of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 3, it says, But you disowned the Holy and the Righteous One and asked for a murder to be granted to you, but put to death the Prince of Life, the One whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. The reason that destruction was coming upon Jerusalem was because they had rejected the Messiah. They had crucified the Messiah. Not only had they just rejected Him, but they had put the very Son of God to death. And now, great judgment was falling upon them. The Scripture talks about the greatest sin that was ever committed, and that was the crucifixion of the Son of God. So when you think about the crucifixion of the Son of God being the greatest sin ever committed, then what does the greatest sin ever committed deserve? It deserves the greatest type of punishment. And we see that being outlaid here in the destruction of the temple. Remember what Jesus said. 
Jesus said, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Now, when you think about what's going to happen to Jerusalem, it's interesting to think back what would happen just a short while after this conversation. When Jesus had been arrested, and he was standing before the crowds, and Pilate had done what he had tried to do to release him, you remember what he said. He said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, what? His blood shall be upon us and upon our children. Now you think about that. And you think about what's getting ready to happen here in Jerusalem. And you see the fulfillment of this passage come to light. Jesus would say again in Luke chapter 21, Because these are days of vengeance, so that these things which are written shall be fulfilled. And what Jesus was referring to in that passage when he says that these things which are written shall be fulfilled was Micah chapter 3, verse 12, where he says, Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become as high places of a forest. So Jesus here is very clearly pointing out that what's getting ready to happen inside Jerusalem is such a great devastation that it will cause everything to be destroyed. But it was their own fault because they were reaping the judgment of the sin which they had committed in crucifying the Messiah. Now you'll notice there in verse 21 that it says that it's such a great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now, there's some disagreement about this wording and what this means because if you look at it, it seems to say that there's never been anything like this that's happened and there never will be again. Now again, let's, let's look at this from a couple of different perspectives. If we're looking at this from a futurist perspective, uh, it would be unnecessary for Jesus to say such way because if this is speaking of the end of the world in a future context, um, then there would be no need to say that nothing like this will ever happen again because that would be logical. If this is the end, there's, there's nothing else after this. But if we're looking at it from a perspective of accomplishment here in the first century, then what does this mean? What, what kind of language is Jesus using here? And how do we reconcile this with it being an event that has not occurred since the beginning of the world, nor ever will be? Now, one commentator says that the wording of Matthew twenty four twenty one is an intentional exaggeration of language used to emphasize the horror and uniqueness of Jerusalem's judgment. And in fact, it's a kind of language that God has used in other places um, in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 9, he says, For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like was done to Jerusalem. And again, in Daniel chapter 12, he says, And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. But now the scriptures also use this passage or this type of language in the description of kings. Now listen to how it describes uh, kings here in 2 Kings chapter 18. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, So that after him, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. And then, speaking of a separate king in 2 Kings chapter 23, it says, Before him, there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the laws of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So what Jesus here is using this exaggerated language to talk about the horror of the judgment that's going to fall upon Jerusalem, that it's so great 
that it's so grandiose in scale and in practical, um, in, in practical, um, practical uh, things that were going to happen that, that it, the only type of language that he could use to describe it would be like, this is something that you've never seen in your life. This is something that you've never grasped before. It would be almost like when we describe something as a, as a world-changing event for us. Now, we think about things that have happened in our life that we would consider world-changing events that we've recognized in our lifetime, but it would be different for somebody who lived 100 years ago or 200 years ago. So Jesus here is pointing to how great and how severe and emphasizing that language to show the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment that would befall it. Now, as I said before, as I studied through this passage this week, I really become aware of, of how, you know, how, how great this judgment was. Because as you read through the text here, you understand that there's going to be some severity here because of the way Jesus describes it and because of some of the, the language that he uses. But it's really when you begin to study the historians who were there, Josephus being the most prominent one, that you begin to understand, again, how severe this fall of Jerusalem was. And so I wanted to read a couple of quotes to you from Josephus this morning. And this first one is describing um, what was happening inside the city. And it says, And now, rushing into the city, speaking of the Romans, they slew whomever they found without distinction, and burned the houses and all the people who had fled into them. And when they entered for the sake of plunder, they found whole families of dead persons and houses full of carcasses destroyed by famine. And they came out with their hands empty. And though they thus pitied the dead, they had not the same emotion for the living, but killed all that they met, whereby they filled the lanes with dead bodies. The whole city ran with blood, insomuch that many things that were burning were extinguished by the blood. Now, that's, that's hard to fathom, that there were buildings burning, things were on fire, and the blood was flowing so deeply in the streets that things were being extinguished by the blood flowing down. Josephus notes that during this time there were 97,000 approximately Jews taken captive, and he estimates there were probably 1.1 million who died during the siege of Jerusalem in that period of time. Now, what's interesting is Jesus talks here about the days being cut short. He says, but for the sake of the elect, those days would be cut short, because he said if, if it hadn't happened, no life would have been saved. So basically what Jesus is saying is something is going to happen that will cut these events, the timing of these events short, because if it didn't, then nobody would survive. The Romans would continue pillaging. They would continue their destruction until every life was taken, until every person was gone. But Jesus, for the sake of the elect, for the sake of my people, in order to keep them safe, even though they're outside of the city now, in order to keep them protected, something is going to happen. Now, what began to happen in the fall of Jerusalem was, was when Titus first came in, his attempt first was to, to starve the people of Jerusalem out. So they surrounded the city to block anybody from going in, from anybody from going out. And they began to just put a siege on the city to keep food from going in. And so what began to happen is people started to starve on the inside of the city. And during that period of time, finally a group of insurgents in Jerusalem rose up and began to try to fight back against the Romans. And when that happened, Titus gave up on his desire to just starve them out and they began to battle and to begin to march into the city. So here was this moment where God cut short the days because Titus was well willing to sit out there and let everyone inside of Jerusalem starve. But God in His providence orchestrated these things that this event would be cut short and that the, the battle would take place and that the battle would soon be over in order that His people might be protected. And it's interesting that Emperor Titus, even though he was a Roman and a pagan and not a believer of God, 
speaks of the battle and says it this way, we have certainly had God for our assistance in this war. And it was no other than God who ejected the Jews out of these fortifications for what could the hands of men or any machines do towards overthrowing these towers? So even Titus himself recognized that there had to be something that happened in this moment that caused a change to happen that allowed them to go in and to win this battle. And he attributed it to God even though he was not a believer in God. But we see here the hand of God at work in doing what Jesus said he was going to do, that he would cut those days short for the sake of the elect. Now, I want you to notice, fourthly, the deception of teachers. Now, it's interesting, because here, in a third time, we here see Jesus talking about this deception of false teachers. Uh, he, done it in the fir- he has done it in the first section of description of signs. He did it in the second description of signs. And now, again, he says in verses 23 through 26, he says, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, even if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. He tells them clearly during this time that Jesus, he's he's saying to them, I will not appear to you physically during this time of tribulation. Because he's warning them that if anyone comes to you and says, I'm the Christ, don't believe him. If anyone says that they're doing signs and wonders, don't believe them. If anyone says, I'm out in the wilderness, don't believe them. If anyone says, I'm in the secret places or the hidden places, do not believe them. But what's interesting here is that Jesus repeats this warning against false teachers again. He says, do not believe them. Now, again, let's call back to our remembrance the the reasons why this would be so deceptive during this time. Number one, the Jews were still continually looking for the arrival of a Messiah. You know, they had rejected Jesus, but they still believed a Messiah was coming. And so now, when you think about the culmination of these events, Jesus now has moved from just what was leading up to the destruction of the temple in AD 70 to the actual destruction itself. So you think about the city of Jerusalem being sieged and compassed about by all the Romans. You think about all these people dying of starvation from, from the famine. You think about all these people being killed by the Roman soldiers. This would have been, again, another time where the Jewish people would have been crying out, saying, God, will you not now send us the promised Messiah? And so it was very easy for some cunning person to get up and say, Oh, here I am. I am the Messiah. I'm I'm Jesus Christ. I'm come. I have come. The Messiah has, has come back. The one has come. And it was not just that somebody was going to rise up. Notice that Jesus says here that they will arise and again show great signs and wonders. Now, We don't really know what the signs and wonders were, but we know that they had to be very impressive because Jesus says that they would mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now, we understand that those who are children of God, those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ, if we are saved, we are completely in God's hands and no one can take us out of his hands. Once you are a Christian, you cannot become a non-Christian. Once you are in Christ, you cannot be out of Christ. So what Jesus is using, where he's using this language to describe how great and wondrous these false teachers will be. Because he said, if it were possible to deceive the elect, these false teachers would be able to do it. So we have to understand that the, the, the signs and the wonders that these men were doing were no doubt just astonishing to watch. 
And so Jesus is telling me, he says, you've got to be very careful because you can't just look on the outside at what these guys are doing and assume that because they're doing great and wondrous things that you're genuinely from God or that they're genuinely speaking the truth. He says, those will be deceptive signs and wonders. It's right. Jesus says, behold, I've told you in advance. He says, I'm giving you instruction. I'm giving you warning. Do not be deceived when they come. Now, it's interesting in verse 26, he talks about the wilderness and the inner room because these were kind of techniques that a lot of those who were noted in the um, first century would use when they were deceiving people. They would try to lead people out into the wilderness, as John the Baptist did. This was a common uh, Old Testament thought of where prophets and, and miracle workers would come from, which is the reason why John the Baptist was so noted when he came out of the wilderness. And so you'll see several times during the first century where men would lead people out into the wilderness uh, in order to mislead them and to try to get together a band of people together, uh, but also in this idea of secrecy. It's like, oh, well, he's, he's in this secret place. You know, you have to come here to know and to understand. He says, if you hear any of this, he says, it's all foolishness. Don't believe any of it. Don't be misled by any of it. But understand how great the deception is going to be. And so this was happening. Uh, during the destruction of the temple, during the fall of Jerusalem, many people were rising up, misleading many and carrying them away into further destruction. Now, the final thing I want you to notice here um, is the delivery of this trial. Notice what he says. He says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Jesus talks about lightning flashing from the east to the west. Now, again, when we talk about the locality of this event, is Jesus here talking about a worldwide event or is he talking about a localized event? Now we know that the scripture tells us that when Jesus Christ returns on his second coming, the scripture says that every eye will see him. That every person on the face of the earth, now how that works, we don't have any clue. We don't have any idea how every eye will be able to see Jesus on his second coming. But we know that it's true because the scripture tells us that it is. But the language that Jesus uses here to describe this coming, when he's talking about coming to Jerusalem in judgment, is not talking about a worldwide vision of him coming. Why? Because if it flashes lightning in Charlotte, North Carolina, do they see it in Sacramento, California? No. They can only see it in that region. They see it from where it flashes from the east and goes over to the west, and it's visible even to that region. So Jesus here is describing not a worldwide event, but a localized event. But, but ultimately what he's describing here is not the, the, the location of the event, but he's talking about the, the type of what it's going to be, that it's going to be quick, that it's going to be sudden, and that it's going to be without warning. Have you ever been outside on a relatively mild day and you're out working in the yard? It doesn't look rainy at all, but all of a sudden there's just a loud thunderous clap of thunder and lightning. It just comes out of nowhere. No warning, no expectation of it, no thought that it was going to happen. Jesus is using this to describe his coming in judgment on Jerusalem. And in fact, it's because in the Old Testament, there's a lot of references to lightning as a type of judgment upon the world. So in Ezekiel, Jesus is, or excuse me, God is talking about, through the prophet, talking about his sword of judgment. And listen to what he says. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Say, a sword, a sword sharpened and also polished, sharpened to make slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. 
Or shall we rejoice the rod of my son, despising every tree? It is given to be polished that it may be handled. The sword is sharpened and polished to give it into the hands of the slayer. And then later on in that chapter, he says, Many fall at all their gates. I have given the glittering sword. Ah, it is made for striking like lightning. It is wrapped up in readiness for slaughter. And again, later on in that same chapter, Ezekiel 21, he says, A sword, a sword is drawn, polished for slaughter, and cause it to consume that it may be like lightning. So Jesus here is describing his coming in judgment upon Jerusalem. It's going to be swift, it's going to be quick, it's going to be severe, and it's going to be without warning. It's going to become upon them, and it's going to accomplish everything that he had set out to do. And notice what he says, So will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, you remember we talked about this passage very early on in Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus was asked the question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And that word coming is parousia, which means presence. Now, we're not talking about a figurative presence. We're talking about the literal presence of Jesus. But just because it's a literal presence of Jesus does not mean that it has to be a physical presence of Jesus. Jesus is not talking about here appearing physically present, but he's talking about appearing literally present because the same concept comes to mind where Jesus has given us these promises in the New Testament. You remember in Matthew chapter 18, he says, Where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. My presence is with them. And then Jesus said in Matthew 28, teaching you to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We understand the presence of God, the presence of Jesus being with us in such circumstances, that Jesus' presence is always with us. He's guiding and directing us. So when Jesus says, I'm going to be coming and coming in judgment, he's talking about this physical, I mean, this not this physical, but this literal presence that he would come and be present there in that destruction and in that judgment upon Jerusalem. Now notice here these last verses. He says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now I want to read from you a a quote, because I think it, it lays it out very well, what Jesus is referring to here in this final verse. He says, because of the dead rituals, the Jerusalem of Jesus' day was a carcass, food for the scavenging birds, the Roman armies. There was a literal fulfillment of the prophecy when hundreds of thousands of people were killed during the Roman siege, and most likely scavenging birds feasted on the dead flesh. Even the temple area was not spared. The Idumean and the Zealot revolt left thousands slaughtered in and around the sanctuary. A single carcass would have rendered the city and temple area unclean. And according to Numbers 19, 11 through 22, anyone touching the corpse of a human being was unclean and must be cut off from Israel. As our high priest... Jesus could no longer remain in the city because of its defilement. It had to be burned with fire for purification. End quote. So Jesus here is talking about that at the end of all this, he said the desecration will be obvious. The death of Jerusalem, the death of this Old Testament way, the death of this Old Covenant will be obvious in pointing to the New Covenant that has come through me. Brothers and sisters, as we look at this passage this morning, there were a couple of things that that pointed out to me. Number one, we see the seriousness of truth that is described to us by the severity of the judgment. Because as we mentioned earlier, this judgment is falling upon Jerusalem because they denied the very truth of who the Messiah was. 
And when we think about our lives as Christians, do we, do we hold the standard of God's truth that highly in our lives? That we understand that, that God destroyed the holy city, that God destroyed the very temple that he had ordered constructed, that God did all that because they had rejected the truth of who Jesus was. And we think about how many times in what we have seen, whether it be churches or denominations or individuals who reject the very teaching of the Messiah. They reject the truth of who Christ is. And how will they think that they will escape how will they think that they would escape anywhere near severe judgment as fell upon Jerusalem? And they won't. Because the scripture tells us that those who have denied Christ will fall under the judgment and the severe penalty of God. So we understand the seriousness of truth that's found in the severity of the judgment, but we also understand the perseverance of the saints for the proclamation of the gospel. Because Jesus promised deliverance for His people in the midst of this trial and tribulation. What was going to fall upon Jerusalem would not affect those who were in Him. What was going to destroy the Jews would not fall upon the elect. And in fact, over and over it is reported that out of the millions that died of the Jews inside Jerusalem during that final tumult and that final battle, that not a single Christian died during that period of time. Now there were some that had died beforehand at the hands of persecution, but where Jesus said that not a hair on your head shall be touched, that not one of you shall be able to die, he perfectly fulfilled that in that moment, that not a single Christian died during the fall and destruction of Jerusalem. Even though all of this thing was falling upon the world, even though all of this destruction and judgment was falling, God persevered His saints. Why? So that the proclamation of the gospel could continue. That the truth could continue to go forth. And I was just encouraged in my own heart this week in thinking about the things that we look at in the world around us. Brothers and sisters, let us not be dismayed or discouraged. Because even in the midst of judgment upon the earth, even in the midst of people finding the results of their sin, and we see we see around us God giving people over to the, this, their sin and God giving people over to judgment and, and even nations uh, encountering the things that they deserve because God is giving them over to their flesh. Let us not be discouraged because God has still promised to be with His people. His church will prevail and we can continue marching forward and we can continue doing what God has called us to do, which is what He had called His disciples to do, which was to faithfully proclaim and to teach the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this instruction from your word. Lord, we, as we do every week, Lord, we rejoice in the promises that we find that you are good and that you are faithful. And Lord, as we've studied this passage and we've looked at it in the context, Lord, of these things being already perfectly fulfilled in the fall of the temple, Lord, this provides to us great hope because we understand the work that you're doing in this world, Lord, is one that is focused around your truth. And the truth of who you are, that the temple was destroyed in order to demonstrate once and for all that you are the Messiah. You're the only way to God the Father. You're the only way to truth. And that, Lord, our priority is, is to just continue to proclaim and to teach that message as boldly and as often and as courageously as we can each and every day. Father, we pray for your guidance. We pray for your direction. We pray, God, that you would help us to be obedient to the truth of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name.